All right, would you please turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel? Today we are looking uh, primarily at 1 Samuel chapter 7 and 8. And this is a turning point in the life of Israel. Uh, Chapter 8 is the chapter where Israel, uh, one more time, asks for a king, and God relents, and he tells Samuel to give the people a king. And this is going to be our our last sermon on this time period in Israel's history. Um, We looked through uh, the book of Judges since the beginning of this year, and then into a couple sermons here on Samuel. And so I've been thinking about how to sum up some of the ideas and themes that we've considered um, over the last few months. And I want to finish our time by asking this question to you. Is God the author and main character of your story? Is God the author and the main character of your life story? Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, to show us today, as we look to your word, all the ways where we have uh, tried to take control, uh, tried to become the author and the hero of our story, and remind us uh, today of your rightful place um, as the author of our story. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you remember way back in in January, the the book of Judges begins with the people of Israel all gathering together and asking the Lord, what should we do next? All the people of Israel gather together and they seek God's direction. They seek his will and his plan for them. Israel acknowledges that God is the author of the story of their people. At this point in Israel's history, they remembered that God had brought them up out of slavery, out of Egypt, that he had brought them into the promised land, and that he had helped them up to that point. And so they come to him all together and they ask, God, what should we do next? That's the very beginning of the book of Judges. Do you remember the the last verse of the book of Judges? That everyone did what was right in their own eyes. At the end of the book of Judges, people are no longer seeking God's direction together, no longer looking for his plan and purpose. Instead, everyone is simply doing what is right in their own eyes. In other words, the people of Israel were saying, God, we are the author of our own story. And we are going to do things the way that we want to do them. And as we saw in the book of Judges, that really terrible and violent book, a book that tells us and shows us the consequences of what happens when we forget to allow God to be the author of our story and instead take on that responsibility for ourselves. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, turn a couple pages backwards to 1 Samuel chapter 4, we read another example of Israel acting as if they were in control acting as if they were the author of their own story and treating God as if he was sort of a a secondary character in in their own story. Chapters 4 through 6 of 1 Samuel is a story about the Ark of the Covenant. 
The Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of God's presence. It belonged in the tabernacle at the center of the tabernacle. And there were all sorts of of rules and regulations about who was to go into that place where the Ark of the Covenant was, who was able to go there and when, and the kind of of, of rituals in order to, to make oneself pure, in order to go in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. Those are all in, in uh, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, all those rules and regulations around the Ark of the Covenant and how that Ark should be treated. But here in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the people forget all of those things. I just want to read the story of what happens. 1 Samuel chapter 4, going to be, begin reading at verse 1. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised a great shout so that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. We are in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. Plagues in the desert. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or we will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And so the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated. And every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. We're going to take the Ark of the Covenant, and we are going to make God useful to get us what we want. They don't go to the author of the story like they did in Judges 1 and ask for his plans and purposes. Instead, they write their own story. We've got our own plans and purposes, and God, we're going to use you to get us what we need and what we want. And that doesn't work very well for them. The way this whole story is set up, it seems like the Israelites are going to win, right? The first eight or nine verses, you think, well, the ark's there, everybody's excited, the Philistines are afraid, but in a moment, everything turns, and the Philistines are the one that gain the victory. And the Philistines capture the ark, and the next two chapters, uh, chapters five and six, are basically a retelling of how, um, because the ark is in the land of the Philistines, everything goes really badly for them. And uh, there's these plagues that come on, on them, and they just... They try to get rid of it at the end. They just take this thing away from us. It's it's done nothing but bad for us since it came to us. And so the presence of God, which was supposed to be a blessing to Israel and the nations around them, it becomes a curse to the Philistines. So that's Samuel's chapter 4, 5, and 6. And so we come then to chapter 7. 
chapter 7, and we read that Samuel has been away for about 20 years. Um, and he returns to the scene here in chapter 7, and we read about his leadership for the people of Israel. And we see in Samuel's leadership that it is a call to remember God as the author of Israel's story. Samuel's leadership is about remembering God as the author of Israel's story. I'm going to re- first begin by reading Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. The first thing that Samuel does is he calls people to true repentance. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord. They took it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to guard the ark of the Lord. It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, and all the people of Israel mourned and they sought the Lord. As Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all of your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and their Ashtoreths and they served the Lord only. For 20 years, the people were crying out to God. It seemed as if God had had left them, and the people of Israel really sad about that. But we see that they haven't really repented. They are still worshiping the idols of the gods of the people around them. They are grieving the consequences of their sin, but they're not actually repenting or mourning over their sin. They are grieving the consequences, the effects of their sin, but they're not actually grieving and repenting from their sin. And there's a difference there. There's a difference between being sorry about the impact that our sin has, about the hurt that it causes to ourselves or to other people, or sorry that we got caught, right? There's a difference between that and actually mourning and repenting from our sin. In the first couple verses of chapter 7, the people of Israel are still committed to writing their own story. They're sorry of the things that they've done. They're sorry it seems as if God's presence has left them. They sort of kind of wish that God was a part of this story. They're sorry that he's so quiet, that he isn't acting in the life of Israel anymore. But they're not willing to give up their own plans and purposes. And so Samuel steps in and he leads them and he calls them to true repentance. If you're really If you really want to return to the Lord, these are the things that you need to do. And this is Samuel's first step in leading God's people to remember God as the author of their story. The second thing that he does is he leads them to worship. Verses 5 through 11. Samuel said, Assemble all of Israel at Mitzpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mitzpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And on that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel was leader of Israel at Mitzpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mitzpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. And so Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. 
While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth Notice the difference here between Hophni and Phinehas in the previous story and Samuel in this story. Hophni and Phinehas believed that they could use the ark, that they could use God's presence as a sort of good luck charm to get them what they wanted. But Samuel knows that God can't be used like that. Samuel knows that God is creator and he's Lord and he deserves to be worshiped. And it's interesting to me in this story that Samuel knows that the Philistines are all preparing for battle. But Samuel doesn't prepare the people for battle. He doesn't muster an army. He leads the people to worship. Now, there's plenty of times in Scripture where God calls his people to get ready to go into battle, to to get your weapons and to go and fight. But here in this story, God does not call them to do that. Samuel doesn't muster up the army to go and fight the Philistines. He simply calls the people to pray and to worship. What Samuel is doing here is he's calling the people to get their own spiritual house in order before they go and fight the Philistines. I think there's a lot of us, and I certainly include myself in this group, where many, many times in our lives, in my life, The story that we're writing is that we want to do great things for God. We want to win some great battles for God. But our own life with God, our own worship and prayer life is absent. It's empty. And Samuel is concerned here about putting first things first, about rightly ordering the people's worship, calling them to the most important thing first, and believing that God will take care of the rest. I don't think that Samuel knows that God is going to deliver them miraculously here. I don't think he knows that for sure. He just knows that Israel has to turn their hearts first before any good thing can happen. Even if the Philistines come and take over us, even if they come and win this battle, so be it. But my people's hearts need to be turned back to God. Samuel leads the people to prayer and to worship. And by God's grace, he does do this miracle and win a victory for Israel. And after that victory, Samuel then leads people to remember. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. After this uh, great victory, it says, Samuel took a stone and he set it up between Mitzpah and Shen, and he named it Ebenezer, which means, thus far the Lord has helped us. One of the most important things that we can do to remember God as the author of our story is to remember, to remember the places in our life where God has been at work. This is one of the most frequent commands in all of Scripture is for Israel and for us as followers of Jesus to remember, to remember, to remember what God has done. One of the most... um, 
valuable discipleship and leadership exercises that I've ever done um, was about 10 years ago when I was going through a particular leadership development program. And uh, one of the processes they put us through was to help us write our own, our own life story. And the way that they did that is they, they had us begin by taking yellow and pink post-it notes and just spending an hour or two and writing out all of the critical incidents that have happened in our past. And so for an hour or two, just brainstormed things that happened in, in my childhood, in my teenage years, in my college years, in my seminary days, times of dating Katie, all those different things that happened. And on yellow post-it notes, I was to write down any incident that happened in my life that was either good or that seemed neutral. And then on the pink post-it notes, I was to write any incident, any moment in my life that was painful or difficult or some sort of trial. And then what we were to do is to take all these post-it notes and kind of put them in chronological order from one side of a poster board to the other. And then what we were to do is to break our life up into chapters and give each of those chapters a name. And what happened almost inevitably in my story as well as in the other people who were going through that story is that the pivot point from one chapter to another was marked by a pink post-it note. By some moment of trial or some moment of pain, where we were able to look back and to see that it was in that moment that God was transitioning us from one part of our life story to the next. And while that was a story, a part of our life that we certainly wanted to avoid, that we tried to avoid at that time, or we hated having to admit was a part of our life now, we saw that God used those painful parts of our story to move us from one place to another. Can you think about some time in your life where that's the case for you? where God took some moment of pain or difficulty or trial, when you can look back and remember that that's actually where God moved you from one place to another. Samuel leads the people to remember the work of God in their life. This was a painful season in Israel life. Over 30,000 of their soldiers died right around this time. But it was a moment where God was moving them from one place to another. He calls them to remember And lastly, Samuel guides people to faithfulness. Verses 15 through 17. Samuel continued as judge over Israel all the days of his life. And from year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mitzvah, judging Israel in all those places. But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was. And there he also judged Israel. And he built an altar there to the Lord. After this victory, Samuel, as a leader, follows up and he goes back to all the different areas of Israel and he guides the people to live faithfully, to remind them what God has done and to remind them that God was the author of their story and that they were called to live faithfully to him. And then we turn a chapter to chapter eight. And here's how chapter eight begins. When Samuel grew old... He appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. 
So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Chapter 7 tells us how great Samuel's leadership is. But he's not perfect. Like his mentor Eli, he has sons who are not following God, sons who are not following their father's example. And that, the fact that his sons didn't follow his example may or may not be his fault, but for some reason, Samuel is still allowing them to lead. He's putting them in positions of authority in spite of their dishonesty and their lack of justice. And that is a problem. These first few uh, verses of chapter 8, if nothing else, it reminds us that no one, not even Samuel, is perfect. The only one who gets to be perfect in our story is Jesus. The task for the rest of us, even for someone like Samuel, is to be willing to recognize and to admit our weaknesses, our failures, our mistakes, to own up to them and to confess them when necessary, and to allow those weaknesses to bring us into closer relationship with God and with other people. Our weaknesses and our sin are reminders to us that we are not heroes of our own story. We will mess things up. Not even Samuel, as great a leader as he was, as faithful to God as he was, he was not able to do all things well. Only Jesus did all things well. Samuel had blind spots. He had weaknesses that were going to be a real problem for Israel. And I just want to note as the story unfolds that God doesn't reject Samuel because of that failure. God is not surprised or disappointed that Samuel is not perfect. God knows Samuel, and he knows you. Samuel's failures and weaknesses, your failures and weaknesses, are reminders to us that we don't get to be the author and the hero of our own story. We have a hero. He's a hero who comes to rescue us when we need him. And the story of our salvation is not a story of our own good and our own heroism. It's the story of God's good rescue for us. Our weaknesses, our failures, our sin are reminders to us that we need God. The rest of chapter 8 is the account of Israel's decision to reject God as their king, to reject God as the primary author of their story, and to have a human king lead them as well. Let's read uh, chapter 8, verses 6 through 22. When the people said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are now doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. 
Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and his attendants, your men servants and maidservants, and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. I hear Samuel starting to start lose his breath here. He will take a tenth of your flocks and yourselves will become his slaves. When the day comes, you will cry out for relief for the king you have chosen. And the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all the, what all the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, everyone go back to his own town. No matter what warning Samuel gave to them about the way that a king would lead them and treat them, the people still insist that trusting God as our king is just too hard. It's too unpredictable. We can't manage or control God. He may come through for us at some times when we want him to, but it's too hard. We can't control him, and we aren't able to use him for our own purposes. So like all of the other nations, we want a king that will lead us. To use our metaphor from last week, they want carbonation rather than fermentation. They want a quick fix, something that they can see and control and manage rather than having this long and slow and organic work of fermentation, fermentation that requires faith and trust in a work that they cannot control or manage or see. And in this moment, God gives the people what they ask for. And of course, it doesn't turn out well. Israel gets Saul and later all of the other kings of Israel and Judah who do everything that Samuel warned them about here in chapter 8. And we see in the story of Israel that cycle of judges that we read about over and over again just keeps on happening in the life of Israel. But if you know this story, you know that God takes Israel's bad decisions and he works it out for his plans and his purposes. Eventually, God raises up David, who will be a king after God's own heart. And then through the line of David, God will bring Jesus, the true king. God has this way of taking our mistakes and our failures and turning them for good. Because the truth is this. God is the author of your story and mine, whether we acknowledge it or not. All of creation... All of history find their source and their reason and their meaning and their end goal in him. God is working out his purposes in our world, whether we see them or not, whether we recognize them or not. And that's not only true for God's big grand story of creation and history, but it's true for your own life as well. Your life story finds its source and its reason and its meaning and its end goal in him. 
And so the question is not whether or not God is the author of your story. He already is. The question is whether you will acknowledge his rightful place there. If you will acknowledge his authorship and fully surrender your life to him as the author and the hero of your story. If you will allow your weaknesses, your failures, your sin, your mistakes, if you will use those to help you realize that you're not the hero and that you're going to mess up this story and ask him to take your life and make it what he wants it to be. Would you pray with me? God, we do pray that we would surrender our pens, surrender our typewriters, our keyboards, our ideas and plans for our lives, and that we would surrender those fully to you. God, we acknowledge and recognize that you are uh, the author of our story. You are the hero. Lord, forgive us for those times when, like Israel, we try to use you, your presence, your power for our own plans and purposes. God, I pray that we would surrender to you, that we would repent and, and worship, that we would remember you, and God, that we would live faithfully to you. We ask for your help in this by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.